We pray with me. <clears throat> Father God, we just want to remember this morning both, both parts that we read this morning of the Advent season, both hope and peace. We live in a world that desperately desires and needs hope, something to look forward to, something to, to motivate us and drive us. We live in a world that's broken and filled with tragedy, and we desperately desire to be made whole. God, Christmas, Advent, the season represents both of those things. It's about you coming to be with us to make us whole again, to bring peace on earth. God, as we, as we approach your scriptures here in just a minute, Lord, we pray that, that we can experience that this morning, that you speak to each of us through your word, through your spirit. Speak to each of us where we are so that we can know the hope that's found in you and that we can work to be agents of peace in this world. Amen. So I love, uh, I love the way we started today with, with, with a little bit of liturgy, which is it's not something we always do, but I think there's something really beautiful about it. I love that we started with Jeremy talking about the heart of worship. That song is a, is a fascinating song. Uh, if you know the history of it, it was written by a guy named Matt Redman. And uh, he um, was a worship leader. He's really famous, actually. He's written a number of songs. Uh, and when he was leading worship at his church, he realized that there was something wrong, there was something missing, something wasn't working, um, that it had become just a, a rote thing that they were doing every week. And so he actually stopped doing it. They stopped singing for a long time. Um, he just completely ended it at, while he reflected on what worship um, should be. Um, and then how he restarted it in his space was with that song. So he, he brought it back to that place uh, as, as what our, our time of worship should be all about. So it's a really fascinating story of how he reconnected uh, with what, just what Jeremy said, going back to the heart. But that, was, that really had nothing to do with what we we're going to talk about for the rest of the day. I just thought it was fascinating and wanted to share it with you. Because uh, today we actually kick off a brand new season. We're coming out of a series and we're moving into a new series. Um, it's the beginning of the Advent season, yet yeah, we, we missed the beginning last week. We understand that, but we caught up, so we're good, right? Um, but it's the beginning of celebrating a time of preparation a, uh, for, for Christmas. Um, and I actually love how we're going to begin um, the Advent season here at Harbor Life. Um, and it's gonna, it, we're beginning it with a, uh, with a series that kicks off the book of Matthew. Um, I couldn't be more excited about what we have in store for the next year here at Harbor Life. Um, we've never done this before as a collection of churches, um, but what we've decided to do, and we mentioned it last week as well, is that we're going to spend an entire year in the book of Matthew. We're going to walk through it from beginning to end and see all of the different things that Jesus has to say to us, all the different stories that he's going to tell, all the, the, story, the, the greatest story ever told, the story about Jesus coming to be with us. Now, when we first thought, when this idea was first pitched, I have to admit, I was a little skeptical about it. I'm like, a whole year, um, aren't we going to get bored with it? Are, you know, I, I, I love scripture, but at the same time, an entire year in one book, um, isn't that going to get stale? But then I had the opportunity to sit with the other pastors in the network, and we kind of just broke down what the year would look like, all of the different stories that we could tell. And, what I, and as we did that, I got more and more excited as we were looking at it because what we realized is that Matthew offers this wide breadth of, of topics, of insight, of, of who Jesus is, and I think this next year is going to be uh, a dynamic and life-changing, and I'm so happy to walk with, with you through all of it. I hope you can walk with us in that. 
Now, years ago, speaking of Matthew, I was part of a group of people who would meet every Friday morning. We actually met at 6 a.m., which I guess I had, didn't need to sleep as much back then, but we would meet at 6 a.m. and we would pray every Friday morning, and we would, we would pray using a practice called Lectio Divina. Um, it's an old practice. Um, it's, it's simple. It's simply praying Scripture. Uh, it, it's, it's not that complicated. All you do is you, you pick a piece of Scripture, uh, you read it out loud, then you pause and just wait to see what God has to say to you through it. You read it out loud again, and you can keep listening for what God might be saying to you through Scripture. You read it a third time, and then you just share what God had to say for you, to say to you. Well, one of the things that we did as we were working through uh, Scripture in that way is that we just decided, let's just pick a book and let's pray through the entire thing. And interestingly enough, the, one of the books that we picked was the book of Matthew. And so we prayed through the entire thing. Now, the reason I bring that up is because when we began the book, we were tempted to actually skip chapter 1. Well, maybe not the entirety of chapter 1, but just the first 18 verses. Why? Well, because Matthew starts the greatest story ever told in a really boring way, we thought, right? If you see, the first seven verses of Ma- 17 verses of Matthew are, are a genealogy which to many of us really aren't that interesting. If you ever tried to read through the genealogies in Scripture, the, one, the names are really hard to read, so it's hard to get all the way through. And but when you get to the end, you're like, okay, sweet, right? Moving on, let's get to a story. And so, so, we, so we actually just said, we, we, we were tempted to say, hey, let's just skip chapter one altogether, or at least the first 18 verses, and let's start uh, when it actually gets to the story. But... Uh, what I want to show you today is that I'm glad that we actually didn't do that. My buddy Michael wouldn't let us. So he actually was there in prayer and he said, and he said hey, Scripture itself says all Scripture is God-breathed, including the genealogy at the beginning, so we probably better pray over that too. And we did, and it was dynamic and amazing. And I want to share some of that with you today. Because Matthew begins like this. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zariah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Abimadad. Abimadad, the father of Nashalon. Nashalon, the father of Salmon. I'm not going to keep going because it's like that. (laughs) But we have to ask the question, why would Matthew start his story this way? Why does that, how he decides to begin the entire story about Jesus' life? Because, as you probably guessed, especially coming out of our last series, Matthew didn't put it there on accident, or only to be applicable to Jewish people. Matthew put it there on purpose, and for a really important reason. See, if we're going to understand why Matthew begins this way, and actually if we're going to spend a year in the entire book of Matthew, we probably need to understand a little bit about Matthew himself uh, and the context that he's writing into. So we know the Gospel of Matthew was probably written sometime around 85 AD, meaning the first temple, or I'm sorry, the second temple, the temple of Herod, had been destroyed. We know that about 70 AD, uh, the, the, the Roman emperor Titus, marched into Jerusalem to put down a revolt. And while he did that, he burned the temple of Herod to the ground. 
This was a huge event in Jewish history. Because if you're familiar with Jewish history, this is the, again, this is the second time their temple has been destroyed. First, it was the, when Babylon invades and burns down the Temple of Solomon. The second time was here. And what the Israelites knew, what the Jewish people knew, is they're told, they were told that the, the first temple, the first exile, happened because they were unfaithful in keeping their side of the covenant to God. God had said, hey, let's make a deal. Yep. I will be your God forever, but here's some things that I want you to do. They said, we'll do it. They didn't. And so the exile happens. And so in, especially in the time of Jesus, the mindset of Jewish people was the reason Rome is here is because we haven't done a good job keeping the covenant we were supposed to. And so when the second temple burns down, that mindset is prevalent You see, as you read through the stories of Jesus, you'll see a group of people known as the Pharisees and another group of people known as the Sadducees. One of the things that both of those groups believed was was that it was their responsibility to make sure that Israel didn't fail to keep their covenant again. It's easy as you read through the New Testament to give the Pharisees and the Sadducees a bad rap, and granted, they deserve some of that. But the more you actually look into them, the more you begin to understand why they did what they did. They believed that Rome, again, Rome was there because they had failed to keep the covenant. So they were going to do whatever it took to make sure that didn't happen again. So when the second temple is destroyed then, that throws everything into confusion and disarray. Now there's no place to offer a sacrifice. No place for the priests to work. Even in their mindset, no place to go visit God. Where is he now? Had he abandoned them? Is this the exile all over again? And so, around 85 AD, when Matthew is writing his gospel, the groups of people react. Some of them just gave up. Said, we've tried to do this, we can't, it's over. They tried to fight, they failed repeatedly. Each time Israel revolted after the Maccabees, it went really, really badly for them, and so they gave up. But as we see through the book of Acts and through the New Testament as well, others decided to double down. They became even more obsessed with keeping every single component of the law. And actually persecuting anybody who didn't. But then there was this other group of people other group of of Jewish people who had been following the teachings of this guy named Jesus, who at the time of Matthew had been crucified about 50 years earlier. And they were especially tricky because they were allowing the Gentiles to enter in as well, completely screwing everything up for those who wanted to follow the law. So you can imagine if you're a Jewish person in this era, the confusion you're experiencing, the disillusionment, All of the pressures and influences coming from either side. Hey, should we just go ahead and be like Rome? Maybe. Should we double down and hold to the Old Testament covenant? Maybe that's the answer. Or should we follow this guy named Jesus who tends to pull in even the Gentiles? Maybe that's the answer. What we have is a community fractured and broken, arguing about lineage, righteousness, traditions, and laws. That's the community that Matthew writes to. And what we'll see as we spend a year working through the book of Matthew is that we're going to see that he's going to write his gospel in a way that connects deeply to those Jewish traditions and understandings of the Old Testament. His goal is going to be that Jesus is the fulfillment of the entirety of the Old Testament. 
He wants to show that Jesus truly is the Messiah they've all been waiting for. He actually even says it in the very first line of the book. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So what we have, and we have to understand this for the whole time that we're here, is that Matthew is a book written to Jewish Christians, religious people, trying to figure out what their faith looks like now that the world has been turned upside down. Matthew is written to religious insiders, if we want to use that word, to people who already are part of that community. But there's something else that's really interesting about Matthew as well. He writes the gospel to a group of religious insiders, but as we'll see, the main focus will be on Jesus' mission to those who are considered to be outsiders. You're going to see it over and over and over and over again in Matthew. It's not a subtle point at all. Probably because Matthew himself was once considered an outsider. Matthew was Jewish by nationality. That's true. But we also know that his profession before he follows Jesus was one of a tax collector. Now, it's easy for us. If you've been in church a long time, we always talk about the tax collectors as being the bad guys. But why? Right? Why was that such a big deal? Tax collectors in the day and age of Matthew, and is also known as Levi if you're reading it in Luke, he is the, those two names. Tax collectors were not well liked. Now, granted, they probably aren't today either, but it was different then. They were, they were not well, well liked for two reasons. First, Rome gave each tax collector a quota. Right? So, if you're Matthew, maybe, maybe the emperor says, hey, I'm going to need a thousand talents from you in this segment of time. Matthew's responsibility then was to Rome was just to make sure he, at the end of his designated time, had a thousand talents to give back to Rome. See, the problem, though, was that if Matthew decided to collect 1,250 talents, let's say, he still only owed Rome a thousand. He got to keep the extra 250 for himself. Rome allowed for a little bit of wiggle room there because they knew that's how you kept your tax collectors happy. Now, granted, they couldn't go over the top, but they were known for collecting more taxes than they need and keeping the rest for themselves to become very wealthy. You can imagine that didn't make people very happy. Made people actually really, really upset. One of the reasons tax collectors were hated is because they were viewed as thieves. But it was more than that. See, in the Jewish mindset, a tax collector had betrayed their people. They betrayed their people for the sake of Rome. So now they're the enemy. A tax collector is basically as bad as Rome in the Jewish mindset. Actually, Jewish zealots would go as far as to kill tax collectors fairly regularly. And they just considered it to be a casualty of war. Which, by the way, we've said this before as well, adds an extra layer uh, of... uh, extra layer to Jesus' selection of his disciples. If you read through the list, you have Matthew, who's a tax collector, but you also have a guy named Simon the Zealot. Like we've, we've said it before, but i got to imagine that first meal together, it was pretty awkward for them, right? Simon, why are you reaching for the butter knife? Relax, man. Jesus decides he wants both of those people in his group, though. See, for many, peop- for many Jewish people, Matthew was just as good as a Gentile. Sure, he was Jewish by nationality, but he wasn't one of us. He's an outsider. 
which might explain his big heart for those who are considered outside the faith. See, as we go through this series, be continually asking yourself who would be considered by the religious community today to be an outsider? And how do we do our best to make sure we're meeting them regularly? We'll see that throughout the entirety of the book of Matthew. Now, all that hopefully is a little interesting in getting our context wrapped around the book that we're in, but it doesn't answer the question that we started with, which is, why does Matthew begin his gospel written to Jewish Christians, encouraging them to adopt Jesus' mission to the outsider with a list of names? Well, genealogy has been a regular part of human history for a long time. Honestly, they still are. How many of you have ever looked up your ancestry, like on Ancestry.com, or maybe like the 23andMe? Has anybody ever done that? few of you have. My dad went down that rabbit hole not that long ago. He spent, like, he got in and then just couldn't get out and spent, he's retired now, so he's like, I got to do something. Spent ridiculous amount of hours finding out a whole bunch of really interesting information, actually, but also pretty nerdy, so it is what it is. But we'd like to know our histories. Actually, when we sat down and he walked me through it for far too long, um, there was some really, really interesting things there. We like to know where we come from, right? And what happened. And genealogies are a great way to get at that. But Matthew doesn't just give us a straight history at the beginning of his gospel. It's actually really fascinating. Luke starts with a genealogy too. So if you were to read the gospel of Luke, it starts out in a similar way. But If you were to put the genealogy in the book of Matthew next to the genealogy in the book of Luke, you'll notice something almost immediately. And that's that they're not the same. Actually, there's some very significant differences between the two. Why? Well, before we can answer why why those genealogies are different and how that works, we need to understand something about the Bible itself. First, The Bible was written 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 years ago, which you might be going, duh, obviously. But it's important to realize the Bible was written in the first century, and something called the scientific method has its roots in the 14th century and really comes into its own in the 16th century with Francis Bacon and inductive reasoning. That's what we understand to be the scientific method. It's really important to understand because we live in an era of We live in the era of the scientific method. And because of that, two concepts have become inseparable. The concept of accuracy and truth. If something is not accurate in our mindsets, then it is not true. Correct? But if I were to say there are 150 people here right now, and you were to count them, and and it wasn't 150, you said that's not true. We can't separate in our minds accuracy and truth. It's how we function. They're so intimately related to each other. It makes it difficult for us to think about it in any other way. But like I said, the Bible was written 2,000 years ago. Scientific method didn't come around until the 14th century. That's not how the people of Jesus' time saw the world. Sure, those concepts were still related to each other. But, if you were to, we have a story in the Bible called the feeding of the 5,000. If you were to go and into that crowd and you were to count the 5,000 people there and you were to come back to the disciples and say, actually, there were 5,112, the disciples would look at you and go, okay, so what? 
they probably would say that to you and still, when they write the story, put it down as 5,000. See, it was perfectly acceptable in the time of Jesus to approximate numbers. And they would even take it one step further. It was perfectly acceptable for almost the entirety, or actually for the entirety of biblical history, to approximate numbers in order to make another point, which is what we have in the beginning of Matthew. Like we mentioned, Matthew's genealogy is shorter than Luke's. It's different. Now, part of that is because Luke goes all the way back to Adam, where Matthew starts at Abraham. But even if we were to match them up, both starting at Abraham, Luke's is significantly longer. You see, what Matthew does at the beginning of his book is he actually edits down his genealogy into three sets of 14, or double sevens, right? See, seven in the, in the Jewish mindset is the idea of complete, completion. A double seven is like extra completion, which I, I know that's hard for us, but it's like an emphasis. Like, yeah, seven is complete, and two sevens is even more complete. And then if you really want to have the completeness of completeness, you have three of them, because the, that three does that. So what we have in the book of Matthew is we have three sets of 14. What Matthew is saying He's making a point that Jesus is the completeness of the completeness of the completeness of the Old Testament. And he does that by the way he writes his genealogy, which that is important, but what I want to point out is not necessarily what Matthew takes out in order to do that, but rather, with an edited-down genealogical list, what he decides to leave in. Matthew has already had to cut certain people out of the list to make it work. And yet he, he, he includes some really interesting people in the list. Look at this. Judah, the father of Perez, of Zariah, whose mother was Tamar. Matthew has an edited down list for his genealogy and he decides to include Tamar, which is an extremely odd choice for two reasons. First, she's a woman. Duh. But in genealogical, genealogical lists, unless you were a queen, and most likely an extremely powerful one, unless you were an extremely impactful person on history in that way, you didn't get included in genealogies. You need to be like Cleopatra to get into a genealogy. Not like Tamar. So it's strange to include women in your list in this particular time. Because Tamar is also an interesting woman to include because she's not a queen. Actually, her story is pretty sus, which I guess I'm not allowed to say, my kids say. Not nearly cool enough for that. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> anyway, she was, though. Her story's strange. Her uh, story goes like this. Right, Tamar is a, a man named Judah's daughter-in-law, and her husband dies, and Judah believes that Tamar has killed his two sons. So he imprisons her so she can't remarry. So what does she do? She pretends to be a prostitute. She tracks down and tricks and seduces Judah into sleeping with her. By the way, we're not letting Judah off the hook on that one either. He's equally at fault in this case. And she gets pregnant with her father-in-law's child and ends up giving Judah two sons who are part of the lineage of Jesus. A strange person to include in a cut-down list of genealogy, isn't it? 
We have the widow of a wicked man who becomes part of Jesus' lineage through deceit. It's an interesting choice, and yet she's there. Next, Salmon, the father of Boaz, who was married, whose mother was Rahab. Matthew includes Rahab in his list, which again is an extremely odd choice for two reasons. First, she's a woman. We already talked about that part. But second, Rahab was a prostitute in a pagan city that was condemned and destroyed by God. If you know the story, Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho as Joshua marched into Canaan. She saw God's power and so protected the Jewish spies, and as a result, her family were saved from the destruction of Jericho. But she wasn't just saved from the destruction of Jericho. She actually becomes a significant part of the Jewish history, part of the line of Jesus. We have Tamar, and now we have a prostitute from a corrupt pagan city that was under God's condemnation. They both make the list. But it doesn't stop there either. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. You're starting to see a pattern, right? Another woman in the list, and a Moabite one of that. Not a Jewish person, someone from Moab is now part of the line of Jesus. Next, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Uriah's wife. Maybe you're familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba, also a pretty sus story. Twice in one sermon. Yes, got it. You're starting to see that Matthew doesn't start his gospel in this way on accident at all. He's actually making a number of really beautiful points. Because this isn't how you tell your family's story, is it? If you were to walk through the history of your family, you wouldn't do it this way. You'd, if you're trying, especially if you're trying to show some people that Jesus is the Messiah. These are the skeletons in the closet. These are the people that you would assume you'd skip if you were going to skip people. See, kings skip people in genealogies all the time. But it was usually the ones that would have made them look bad. We see it throughout history. It's very often that a king would just skip back to whoever was the most powerful and influential. And you skip over the weaker or more suspect ones. Matthew does the opposite, though. He makes sure to include the checkered past. Because right from the beginning of his book, he's making a point from the outset. To a community who makes the case that certain people don't belong. If you didn't keep, the, remember we talked about the mindset was we need to make sure we don't break the covenant again, meaning that if you're doing that, you're not welcome here. Matthew begins by saying, actually, the people you would consider to be not good enough or holy enough or moral enough or whatever, those people are actually a part of Jesus' ancestry. Matthew begins the greatest story ever told by talking to the insider about how important it is to Jesus, or how important the outsiders are to Jesus. Now, you've heard us say it so many times here at Harbor Life. We want this to be a place where you can belong before you believe, where there isn't insider and outsider. We want to be a place where you can know that Jesus has a place for you no matter what your story is. If you're a person who's considered yourself to be an outsider, I think you're going to love this next year 
Because chapter 1 is just the beginning of that declaration in the book of Matthew. Jesus will over and over and over and over again say, I came for you. That there is no in and out, that I just desire all people to be, to be drawn to me. But if you're here and you consider your spouse to be a religious person, if you've been in the church for a really long time, Matthew's, Matthew's gospel is also written to you. And he begins by letting us all know how much Jesus desires to walk with us while we walk with him towards those who don't know him yet. He's going to force us to ask ourselves the question over and over again, are there people in our lives who need to know that they have value? Are there people in our lives who need to know that they have dignity and worth? Because if there are, maybe you could share the gospel of Matthew with them. Maybe you could share Jesus with them in that way. Throughout the book of Matthew, we're going to see a concept that we talk about here at Harbor Life all the time. You see, so often the religious community is looking to draw lines on who's in and who's out. You're saved or you're not saved. You're us or you're not us. And that was very true in Matthew's day too. It's still true in many places today. But what we're going to see, like what we see in the genealogy of Matthew here at the beginning, is that over and over and over again, Jesus is going to say, don't worry about drawing those boundaries. Rahab is invited into the story. Tamar is invited into the story. Ruth is invited into the story, all of whom would be considered to be outside the boundaries. He declares over and over and over again, I want to be with you wherever you are, and I want to walk with you towards the heavenly life. And isn't that what Christmas is? See, in this Advent season, we prepare our hearts for what? For us finally to be good enough for God? No, not at all. We prepare our hearts to have Jesus come and meet us. See, Matthew begins his book by showing us that messy isn't something that should keep us from Jesus. He makes a bold and unescapable point that the one who is the completeness of completeness, the three, fourteen, double sevens, includes all of the messy. It includes each and every one of us. And so Matthew writes to the Jewish community, to the church, to encourage them to stop worrying about who's in and who's out, who's good enough and who's not. Because he knows that when we do that, we get caught up in arguing about where the borders are, where the fences are, and we forget what Christmas is all about, what the story is all about. And we read it this morning that the story is all about Emmanuel which literally means God with us. See, our task is just to share that gospel, the good news that Jesus is come to be with you. Our task is to believe it for ourselves and then share it with everyone else. Because when we do, all of a sudden, lives start to be changed. I want to end to this morning with a story. Last week, I had a chance to spend time with a friend of mine named Jad. He's a pastor in downtown Phoenix. He's part of, he, I've, I've met him through Alpha. Uh, he's, he's actually the national director of Alpha in the United States. But he's a pastor in downtown Phoenix as well. And if you ever get a chance to talk with Jad, you'll realize right away, out of the onset, that he has a heart for the outsider. It, his heart breaks 
for those who are hurting or felt like they don't have a home in the church. And he'll tell it very freely that he, like Matthew, was once considered an outsider like that. And so Jad, is, <clears throat> so Jad goes into the heart of Phoenix. And he meets people that the rest of society, even, has rejected. And what he sees is he sees person after person after person after person come to know Jesus. People who've been addicted to drugs, who've lost their families, who've been rejected by most of society. He's seen their lives turn around. He, he sees people regularly go from faltering to flourishing. And each time I, I either hear him talk to groups or I've talked with him myself, the question gets asked constantly, how? How do you do it? And his answer is exactly the same every single time. It's a very simple one. If you're to ask him, how do you meet these people and how do, you, how do you get them to follow Jesus and then how do you see their life change, his answer will always be, I don't. He said, don't do anything <laughs> except introduce people to Jesus and walk with them towards him. That's it. He says every single time, Jesus does the work. See, Jad doesn't ever preach morality. And he'll say it because he doesn't have to. He preaches Jesus, a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus, and then he trusts that the Holy Spirit will take it from there. And you could spend an entire afternoon with him telling, him, telling you story after story of story of people who, after they encounter Jesus, decide to walk away from sin in their life all on their own. Not because somebody drew a fence to say, if you don't do this, you're out, but precisely because they knocked them down. Because as soon as we start walking towards Jesus, we realize that there are things in our life that hurt us and are holding us back. And so we walk away from them all on our own. You see, what Jad realized in a tangible way is that Jesus is for you. That he wants what's best for you. And that starts with dignity. We see it in the genealogy of Matthew right at the beginning. Women who would not have had dignity in regular society are included in the genealogy of Jesus. Elevated to the to a significant historical position forever. The gospel message starts by declaring that Jesus came for you, every single person here, and every single person who's not here. Advent, Christmas, is all about Emmanuel about God with us, coming to us before we, were, we figured it all out and got it all put together. Matthew opens his gospel with a declaration that God is for you. Every single one of you. He wants to be with you, near you. He wants to walk with you towards a heavenly life. And so, he inspired his most unlikely disciple someone who would consider themselves to be an outsider, to write a book to the church, expressing his heart for all people, encouraging them to own this truth for themselves so they can meet a world that so desperately needs that truth too. We get to spend the next year in that space 
hearing the declaration of Jesus that I am for you, that he wants to be near you, and then walk with us towards a life that leads us to flourishing. But not just to end there, but to always realize his heart is for the 99, sure, but also for the one. So my hope is that you'll spend this next year with us, growing in a deep and intimate relationship with Jesus so that can change our lives for the sake of changing others. Will you pray with me? Father God, we just pray this morning to know you. The Christmas season is about preparing our hearts for the fact that you came to be with us. In Romans, you say at just the right time, while we were still sinners, you came and died for us. May those who are here this morning who think of themselves as an outsider, may they know that you are for them, that you desire them to be near you, that it's not about boundaries or way in or out, it's about taking another step towards you. May those of us who know you come to know you in a deeper, more intimate way. And may our hearts beat with yours towards those who don't yet. Amen.